0: Hello and welcome to Transfusion's monthly podcast. I'm your host, Yara Park. In today's episode, we'll be speaking with Drs. Richard Utarnachet and Dr. John Hess, who will be discussing their recent work, Economical Provision of Blood Components for Critical Patient Transport Across a Large Geographical Area. Dr. Utarnatchit, will you please introduce yourself?
1: Hi, my name is Rich Utarnatchit. Um, I am a clinical associate professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at the University of Washington. Um, I'm also core faculty in the section of EMS, and I am the medical director for Airlift Northwest, uh, which is the um, air medical service uh, affiliated with the U- University of Washington.
0: Thank you. Dr. Hess, would you please introduce yourself as well?
2: Yes. And I'm John Hess. I'm the medical director of the transfusion service at Harborview Medical Center, which is the county hospital uh, <clears throat> for King County, the county that surrounds Seattle and is the home of the uh, trauma center that really supports four western states, Alaska, Washington, northern Idaho, and western Montana.
1: I guess I should also include that uh, I work in the emergency department at uh, Harborview Medical Center as well.
0: Thank you. Can you summarize your study for our listeners?
2: Six years ago, Rich and I worked to put blood on the airlift system, and this is simply a description of how that has gone. We've now given 1,000 blood components in the air, and we just wanted to review that experience.
1: So I think the initial process of getting the protocol together was in 2014. And then by April 2015 is when we actually started to um, implement this in, at our air bases. Um, and uh, at the time, we only had blood products at one of our, base, uh, one of our bases, um, and at, at that time, we only had seven um, uh, bases at the time that were in operation. Um, so it was a pretty modest sort of start, uh, but a sort of proof of concept um, initially, and we uh, published a paper from that effort um, in our first 16 patients that we transfused um, out, of, uh, out of our single air base. And then over quickly over a period of time, once we can realize that we can actually do this, um, we quickly expanded to our remainder bases. Now we're up to eight bases that, that we supply um, blood to, and that we, uh, that we are able to transfuse blood products out of, um, the major issue. And, uh, Dr Hess alluded to this is our geographical challenges. Um, so, uh, um, our trauma center covers five states, um, you know, Washington, Wyoming, uh, Alaska um um Montana and Idaho um and that's the far reach of our uh fixed wing um aircraft which again carries uh, our blood products um and also uh, the our our uh, border wing bases which is primarily Western Washington Central Washington so it's a large geographic area that we have to um supply blood products to and that poses significant challenges as our air bases are not stationed at hospitals.
0: Yeah, I was shocked by the geographical area being, I'm in North Carolina at UNC, where Duke is nine miles down the road. So we have two level one trauma centers within 10 miles of each other. I was very impressed by what you guys have accomplished.
2: Yes, the closest other trauma centers to us, there are two small trauma centers in Portland, Oregon, but beyond that, the the next closest trauma center to the east is the Mayo Clinic and uh the the two in Minneapolis, and to the south of us would be Davis, California, and then Denver and Salt Lake City, so we cover literally a twenty seven percent of the land area of the United States. That
0: is amazing.
2: You know, Rich and I started this process, just we ended up sitting together at a uh, faculty development program and I asked him if he wanted blood on the helicopters, and he said yes, Uh, and I knew about the uh, eutectic blood boxes that had been manufactured because they actually came out of my old laboratory in the the U.S. Army that had paid for their development, and so we had a SBB candidate who needed a project and was also working on his master's degree and let him validate the blood boxes under the conditions we plan to store them. You know, so we obtained uh, small temperature monitoring devices that we could put inside them and pack them with, you know, just bags of saline. And then we would take the blood out of the refrigerator, or take the, the whole box with the bags in it, and put it into a uh, microbiologic incubator for periods up to 24 hours at a time. So it would be at 98.6 degrees for a day. And then we would measure you know, how well the, the temperature was maintained. And we did that early in, in a week, in the middle of the week, late in a week, in multiple episodes, in, out, in, out, to see what cooling, and convinced ourselves that we could effectively keep the blood safe as long as it wasn't out of the refrigerator for more than 24 hours. And so that's what we trained Rich and his teams to do. You know, we will issue them a box of blood, and as long as it stays in the refrigerator for all but 24 hours at the time. It's rarely above 98 degrees in Seattle. And so, uh, you know, when we got the blood back, we would check the, uh, the temperature. And as long as it was fine, we'd put it back in the refrigerator. And, you know, so we rarely lost blood. And that's what made it possible to do this. And then just simply training the teams to, Uh, If anything went wrong to bring the blood straight back, Uh, if they opened the box and didn't use it to close it, seal it, then bring it straight back. And we've been able to do that now for six years and, uh, you know, 12,000 units of blood at which they've used about uh, slightly more than one. And, you know, it's been a very easy to use and uh, accountable system.
0: So I know you mentioned that the air bases are not at hospitals. So does the air base personnel come to the hospital and pick up that box at the beginning of the week?
1: So, uh, uh, yeah, so the way it works is the um, uh, each base has a refrigerator that we store the blood out of. Um, and that's where it is stored uh, essentially for the week um, uh, that uh, that the blood is outside of the main central fridge. Uh, and we uh, basically the protocol is whenever it's uh, whenever we go on mission um, and it's every mission that we take it on, because you don't know what you're going to get in the field sometimes or interfacility. Sometimes you need blood and, and, uh, and uh, you don't want to be caught unawares without it. So basically we take it on in every mission. Um, it's basically logged out and the time is, 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 is tabulated when it's with the time out of fridge so that we know uh, when it's been out of the refrigerator for more than 24 hours. Um, or out of the central um, refrigerator at Harborview for more than seven days. And then it it just goes back to um, Harborview um, if it's not used. That being said, if it is used, um, when we are at Harborview, then it's swapped out um, with a new box um, of blood products.
0: What was the most difficult practical issue in setting this program up, if you had to choose your top three?
2: Distance and couriers would be one. You know, the bases themselves are uh, far apart. You know, we had to set up a system where we pack a box and, you know, then pack it inside a a secondary blood box with with ice. You know, this then may get taken, uh, given to a courier. One of the bases is in Juneau, Alaska. So it goes to the airport, gets put on a commercial flight taken up to Juneau, it is taken off that flight and then taken to the Air Ambulance Service and, and and shuttled. You know, the second was, is getting uh, a low titer anti-B liquid plasma uh, set up. That took us many months, you know, to set up a recruitment system in conjunction with our local blood supplier to identify a donors with low titers that we could, you know, divert their plasma off of the production line and <clears throat> and have enough of it, you know, to run this program now twenty units a week.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely have to um, uh, support the notion that uh, the logistics uh, of distance is, is is a huge challenge. Um, And, you know, the fact that we are trying to that we try to do this um, with with these bases that are spread so far apart, um, you know, our closest base is in Arlington, Washington, which is a 45 minute drive from Seattle, um, uh, you know, and then uh, upwards of Juneau, Alaska, which is about almost a thousand miles away north. So the logistics is challenging, but and also keeping the blood within range. Um, as Dr. Hess alluded to, we we did have a couple of units that were wasted initially. On I, I remember when we were um, uh, initially uh, looking at the protocol, we had uh, a, a couple of units that were wasted, and again, that, that was some of it was just getting our process down so that um, we were much more fastidious about keeping track of the time out of the fridge. Um, so you know, kind of kind of honing that system down. Um, I think was, uh, was, was a learning curve. And that's why we started with one base only. We didn't go you know, whole hog with all the bases at once because we wanted to make sure that our, our pilot program was sound and all the kinks were worked out. So you know, coming up with uh, ways to warm the blood um, at the scene right, at the pa- uh, right, as, right before it goes to the patient was challenging. And, and we worked with uh, a number of different systems, um, initially using the, the uh, Buddy Belmont Light, um, which was something that the military was using at the time, which is a very portable um, uh, bl- uh, fluid warming um, uh, system. Um, we uh, found that it was able to at least uh, get a relatively decent um, transfusion rate um, with warm product, but it was about 70, 75 cc's per minute um, that you could max transfuse at a um, at gold temperature. We ended up moving to a different um, warming uh, system about a year and a half, two years ago, um, which is the Q and flow, which is uh, a product that was developed out of the Israeli, Israeli military, which actually can warm uh, fluid at a much higher rate at 200 ccs per minute um, flow rate. Um, so uh, as we got more facile with transfusing blood um, in the field, uh, we needed, again, a device that can actually warm the product um, that's being pressure bagged in uh, to a, a bleeding patient. So that was an, another challenge that we had to overcome was like, how do you get warm blood um, that we, or, 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 or plasma, um, since we carry liquid plasma to that patient?
0: Very interesting. Can you comment on any regulatory issues you had to address in setting this program up?
2: You know, we have asked the FDA for you know some leeway on the temperature, because we know that you know they will allow transport blood at one to ten, but you have to store it at one to six. So we use the one to six measurements. we We asked them for relief on that, you know, pointing out that you know I have performed the experiments of that what happens if you store blood, you know, for 24 hours at 25 degrees centigrade, and, uh, you know, you lose about a week. And, and they said no. So so we live with the regulations that everybody else does.
0: What happens if the patient has a transfusion reaction? How are those handled?
1: Uh, so we have a protocol, um, at least um, uh, on the air side, uh, when, when we get them to actually treat them um, with diphenhydramine and things like that. So we actually have a protocol for transfusion reaction um, should it happen, uh, in in all of the patients that we have transfused, and again, it's been several thousand <laughs> units, uh, there has not one there hasn't been a there has not been a documented transfusion reaction. Um, now, granted, um, a lot of times the patients that, that we are transfusing are pretty sick. If they're getting blood, um, either pre-hospital or inter-facility, they're pretty sick. So, uh, you know, like maybe the reaction may not have been caught. That being said, there hasn't really there there hasn't uh, been a, a, a documented one that I'm aware of.
0: And would the interpretation and evaluation, if there was one, go back to Harborview for that evaluation?
1: Um, potentially, um, if, if, if that did occur. Now, the, the majority of patients that do get blood products end up back at Harborview, but we do transport um, to other hospitals in the region. And um, if that patient needs blood, they get blood regardless of whether or not their destination is Harborview or not. But um, all of the units are tracked fairly fastidiously uh, through transfusion services. So if there was a reaction that could be traced um, back to uh, at least um, uh, where it came out of uh, from transfusion services, I believe.
2: Yes, we have, in fact, had a transfusion reaction that occurred from a unit you probably gave, but but occurred after the patient was in the emergency room here. It was noticed the patient had hives. So, you know, the confusion about, well, hold it, we didn't administer this blood, you know, please just report the reaction. <laughs> and, and, and we worked it up and documented it.
0: And how would you handle a look back, Dr. Hess, if, you know, two years from now, there's an HIV look back? Do you have good traceability, even if the patient didn't come to Harborview? Would you be able to track it from the aircraft to the outside hospital?
2: Well, what I have on my list is that it was issued to an airlift patient and an identification number. And so then I would go to Rich, and Rich again would go to the, the hospital who has the, the activity. But, but yes, I mean, I don't know who those patients who uh, are other, other than their identification number, which is what I maintain.
0: How and why were the blood products, two units of Oneg and two units of liquid plasma, um, selected to be on, the, on each helicopter or aircraft?
2: Well, we needed products that would could be out of uh, the blood bank for a week. And, of course, that disallowed standard plasma. And so we, we went to liquid plasma. Now, standard liquid plasma can be kept for 26 days, you know, cold. Well, we don't keep it for more than 19 just because, you know, I don't ever want to have a bacterial overgrowth of a unit of plasma.
0: How many products and of what type do most patients who do receive blood on an aircraft receive?
2: Uh, typically, they receive one to two, but there are plenty of people who've received all four.
1: Yeah, for the most part, um, if it's for a traumatic hemorrhage, we will start with plasma first. So uh, what, you'll, um, what you'll see sort of when, when we first started um, the program, uh, we started with reds first. So there's predominant you know, PAC red blood cell transfusion. And then as we started to sort of bring out the education as far as lessons learned from things like uh, uh, the pampered trials and things like that, looking at um, which blood products are, are are shown to have most benefit uh, in the field, um, uh, we started to push plasma first. So you'll see a predominance of plasma um, sort of being given. And also uh, what you also see is um, a lot of the smaller facilities that we're transferring out of um, have packed red cells uh, available, but they may not have plasma available. So in order to um, sort of be in line with uh, the evidence from, say, the proper trial and uh, a balanced uh, transfusion one-to-one-to-one, um, we would complete um, that ratio by adding plasma um, to that patient if they got reds at the outlying facility um, as we are transporting in. So, uh, so if you look at kind of what we are giving, um, it sort of depends on sort of what the patient has gotten. Um, But uh, we do tend to give uh, a plasma and reds at a more one-to-one ratio.
0: Do you feel that some patients undergoing other types of transport, such as ground transport on ambulances, could benefit from pre-hospital blood administration?
2: Yes, and we have put blood, now we're using whole blood on the uh, ambulances in the city and county. You know, Seattle has a rather famous uh, paramedic-based ambulance system, which means that if you have an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest in Seattle, you have an almost 50% chance of surviving, Uh, you know. And so with a very well-medically grounded paramedic ambulance system, uh, we put whole blood in the city for the last uh, two years and are in the final stages of getting it out to the other four uh, paramedic ambulance systems. that are all part of the Medic One system uh, across the county. And so we cover about 2.2 million people in King County uh, with blood in the ambulance uh, manager's vehicle. You know, the ambulance will arrive. They'll identify somebody who may be trapped in a car. And, you know, as the supervisor has the blood, uh, they will go to the scene. The paramedics on the site will set up the IV and get it all ready. And when the blood arrives, it's started. You know, but we don't want the blood to interfere with getting the patient to the hospital.
0: Is there any movement of putting whole blood on the aircraft?
2: Actually, we're pretty happy with the uh, red cells and pl- plasma, and we can use the A plasma in the hospital. And, you know, most of the, you know, 90% of the O negative red cells that go out on the helicopters come back and we use them in the hospital. We have a relatively limited supply of whole blood, and we don't have enough to put it on the helicopters and the ambulances. So we're letting the whole blood be used by the paramedics and the components be used by the nurses, and it seems to be working fine.
1: Yeah, um, you know, we we definitely have thought about the whole blood question um, for uh, for air, and um, at this point, because of sort of the mixed patient bag that we see um, between interfacility and field trauma, um, it it makes more sense at this point to have component therapy because a lot of times we are completing that component therapy um, that has started at, say, a small hospital. Um, uh, uh, We are, as far as looking at our scene response versus interfacility transfusion, it's about 60-40. So, um, you know, so starting whole blood initially uh, would make sense if if the patient has not gotten any product yet.
0: Do you have any data on the clinical outcomes of the patients who've been transfused in flight? Well, we have the names, and I've
2: certainly gone through... Um, large numbers of these people and, and reviewed the data. You know, it's hard to n- make sense out of it. The total number of people we have transfused in the air now is of the order of about 380. Uh, you know, that's half the size of the proper trial. What we can tell you is, is some fairly dramatic stories, you know, of people who, you know, had prolonged extractions, Uh, you know, got resuscitated in the field and and in flight and arrived at the hospital with uh, PHs and stuff that suggest that if they hadn't gotten the blood, they they wouldn't have made it.
0: We like a good story too. So I'll take that for sure.
2: I mean, one of our favorite ones is a pair who drove a Jeep off a cliff in Mount Rainier and, you know, 400 feet down the uh you know the driver died the uh the passenger was thrown out of the jeep and bounced down a cliff luckily heavily mossed it took a rescue team the the witness the event was observed and a rescue team went down boarded her and brought her 400 feet up the cliff the helicopter landed at the closest available place and the blood and nurses actually uh, went to the edge of the cliff, and as the patient was brought over the top, several physicians and the nurses, uh, you know, did preliminary assessment and gave her all four units of blood, loaded her on the helicopter, and when she got to Harborview, you know, she had a pH of, you know, 6.98, you know, suggesting that if she hadn't gotten that blood, she wouldn't have made it
1: yeah right. I, that, that was a, that was a great save and you know a great sort of partnership with our with the, um, search, between search and rescue, ground EMS. Um, our, our team had to land at or certainly a remote private airstrip that was um, just around north of Mount Rainier uh, um, because the, the place was so remote they couldn't land any closer. Um, and they had to ca- kind of get trucked in via ATV um, to get closer to the patient's extraction point. So, uh, was, were we were able to start transfusion fairly, um, fairly uh, soon after reaching the patient. And then, you know, did get the full box two and two uh, of product. And kind of as, as Dr. Hester alluded to, you know, was, uh, um, was uh, profoundly acidotic. But, you know, it could have been much, much worse if uh, she was, say, replaced with crystalloid only uh, prior to getting in the hospital. Um, so, we're still working on looking at, you know, outcomes again because of. The much smaller numbers, um, uh, it, it's harder to kind of see um, uh, the uh, the 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 true impact of things, and you know we'll probably get 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 that answer maybe over more time as we have more more patients. Um, what we do see are things like, um, especially in our in in our last publication, which is not up yet, but looking at pediatric blood trans, uh, transfusions, you know a normalization of some of the uh, parameters like INR or calcium levels that, that are significantly um, uh, 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 better in the, in the folks who got uh, blood transfusion in the field versus uh, the patients who did not. Now, what does that translate to as as far as outcomes in hospital? That's somewhat unclear. So I think the, the, the the million dollar question is does this make a difference in outcome um, is still, uh, at least in our setting um, is still, um, uh, Is still being looked at.
0: That leads to one of my next questions. Would it be possible and beneficial to perform a clinical trial looking at outcomes and mortality in these patients?
2: Well, it would be extremely difficult. You know, the proper trial, which would be the model, you know, giving some group of people one thing and some another, uh, you know, took 10 major trauma centers and 11,000 patients to get the 680 that were actually involved and cost $43 million to perform. Plus, you'd have to have ethical equipoise for one group getting one thing and one group getting another. And I'm not sure either the resources or the ethical equipoise exist anymore.
0: And that's our show. Thank you to Dr. Yu Tarnachet and Dr. Hess for joining us for a great discussion. This has been Yara Park for Transfusion's monthly podcast. See you next time.